Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE. It's great to see you all to come out and, and listen to tonight's conversation and join in, hopefully, in the second half of the evening uh, with your questions. A quick word about me, and then we'll move to the focus of the conversation, which is David. Uh, I'm Ed Smith. I was a professional cricketer with Kent, Middlesex, and briefly for England. Um, and now I'm an author and journalist and broadcaster. My connection with the ideas we're going to talk about is that I became very interested in the subject of talent and practice and genes and innate ability at the coalface, if you like, when I was a player. Naturally, I looked around me and I wondered how much of what I saw, uh, when I watched Brilliance, I wondered how much of it was down to what they had, what God had given them, if you like, even if you're an agnostic or an atheist, and how much of it was down to their accumulation of practice. Of course, it's a very complicated question that probably can't be given precise percentages. Anyway, I explored this idea in uh, my last book, one book, What Sport Tells Us About Life, and then my previous book, Luck. However, as Fellini said, uh, I'm, uh, I have too much seriousness to be a dilettante, but too much of a dabbler to be a real professional. I never really sort of spent a couple of years and made it my driving passion to really speak to all the scientists to speak to all the athletes and really forensically explore the question, but I always thought it was definitely needed to be done. So I was absolutely delighted when I read and reviewed David's book, The Sports Gene, and I thought, thankfully, someone's gone out and actually done the real work and really addressed this question head on. So that leads me uh, to introduce David Epstein, who's written the, the book, The Sports Gene, uh, and on my copy it says, What Makes the Perfect Athlete, or those subtitles tend to change a little bit. So a very warm welcome to you, David. And I think if we could just start by, if you could just describe the intellectual or uh, the narrative around talent and genes before you wrote about maybe the 10,000 hours and, and the sort of orthodoxy. Sure. And, and can you hear me okay? Yeah? So originally when I started the project, and actually even when I uh, sold the book proposal, I didn't even mention kind of the 10,000 hours. I just wanted to explore everything... Uh, that we had learned in the decades since the sequencing of the human genome about what genetic science could tell us about athleticism, um, as well as what it couldn't, things that I might have thought were genetic or innate abilities that were actually uh, phenomena caused by practice. And very, very quickly when I got into that literature, um, I started to realize that there was a, a huge segment of, of not only sort of other sports writers, but as well as the scientific community who were of the opinion that genes play no role. Uh, whatsoever in, in athletic performance. And I originally sort of didn't have an opinion about that one way or the other, and so I sort of started uh, with the basics and, and, you know, asking the most basic questions. The, the, the first thing I could think of was, well, if genes play no role whatsoever, why are we separating men and women for the first part? And there, there were indeed uh, sports psychologists who felt that genes play no role in sports performance and that we are separating men and women um, falsely. Uh, in sports. And so I, I sort of started with that most basic question um, and, and just began looking for evidence that genes do um, impact uh, sporting prowess because it was, I think, the, at, at least in the United States, the, the popular accepted narrative had become um, that anything that appears to be the product of innate gifts is really just practice masquerading as talent. That's, that's sort of where it was. It was influencing the scientific community as well. And where did that come from? I mean, a series, a cluster of books which really advocated 
nurture not only uh, above nature but to the exclusion of right, nature. Right, and, and to varying degrees, so varying strictness. And I'd say, obviously, the most um, popular one was Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, which coined the phrase 10,000-hour rule uh, as a title of one of the chapters. But then there were a series of books, uh, Bounce, which I think was a very popular one here by Matthew Syed, The Genius in All of Us by David Schenk, Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin, uh, The Talent Code, um, by Daniel Coyle and, and a number of others. And then it started, the 10,000-hour rule sort of started leaking into uh, into sports science literature um, really quite inappropriately. But so it was sort of those books that then and took off and created the kind of 10,000-hours culture. And the 10,000-hours being the idea that 10,000 hours of practice is, is both necessary and sufficient for anyone to achieve um, expertise in any endeavor. So that's the, at its hardest, that, that's what the, the theory is. You're very polite in your book, uh, and you don't sort of create um, unnecessary antagonism. But by the time you've finished, one has, by the time the reader has finished the book, he's left in no doubt that you profoundly disagree with that whole school of thought. Yeah, well, I didn't really, um, you know, I was interested in, in, I mean, one of the dirty secrets of this book, I guess, is it's like my dozen deepest questions about athleticism that somebody paid me to travel around the world and attempt to answer. And so I was interested in public discourse, not in um, a polemic. And um, the, the science was on the side, well, the science was on the side of what I was saying because I was saying what the science said. So I didn't, there was no need for me to be impolite or to make a polemic or to make an argument. And and in fact, now, sort of since the book has come out, the, the man who is supposedly the father of the 10,000-hour rule, who, 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 the scientist who actually did the work that then became interpreted as the 10,000-hour rule, has become less polite. And he now has on his faculty webpage at Florida State a letter addressing the public treatment of the 10,000-hour rule. And the, the title sort of speaks for itself. It's The Danger of Delegating Education to Journalists. So if you Google Anders Ericsson, you can go... Take a look at that and see what he thinks about how journalists have interpreted the 10,000-hour rule. Just to be clear, it's not your interpretation that he's struggling with. It's the people who are actually purporting to support his ideas. You know, in fact, he had not read any of the books about the 10,000-hour rule. So I, I convened a panel at the American College of Sports Medicine in 2012 and invited him and asked him what he thought about the portrayal of his work uh, in some of those books. And he said, oh, I, I try to stay away from that. And so I bought him a copy of Outliers, and then he started sort of responding to it in other, in other forums, including the British Journal of Sports Medicine, where um, he, he really kind of denigrated the portrayal of, of his work. So on the one hand, the, the public discourse, if you like, before your book is that you give me a baby, I'll expose it to 10,000 hours, and we end up with Mozart. And then how do you go about, or in sporting terms, Tiger Woods is usually the example, or Roger Federer, in sporting terms, how do you go about addressing that or, or repositioning the conversation about talent and genes? Well, I think the first part was, was pretty simple. I mean, how many, has everyone here heard of the 10,000-hour rule? I assume so I don't have to totally explain it. How many, how many, how many people have read the, um, the paper that it actually comes from, the primary source? Anybody? So neither had the sports scientists who were writing it. I, I ask that question all the time when I go to um, a sports science institute and people who are literally, I was in, at the Australian Institute of Sport, which is, you know, really maybe the premier sports science institute in the world uh, in November. It's not and, a good time to talk about Australian supremacy, David. No, <laughs> some of us are feeling very raw and, and, and hurt. 
So unless you want to talk about the superiority no. cricket over baseball, just don't big up the Aussies. But I'm about to, I'm about to make fun of one of them. Does that okay? That's fine. Okay. Carry on. Take as long um, as you like. Yeah. So so a, a football coach there, the the real kind of football that you play with your feet. So I'll I'll speak appropriately. But um, he uh, now you're just making fun. Yeah. He showed me a training plan that he had for youth footballers to take them from age 8 to 18 with exactly budgeting in 10,000 hours of practice and felt that this would make them elite, right? So I ask a person like this, have you read the study that led to the 10,000 hours? No. Are you aware that it was done on 10 violinists? No. So do you often extrapolate violin research to your training plan? <laughs> no, he doesn't. I said, well, let me tell you some other things about that study, right? Not, not only was it done on, on a small group of violinists, but these were violinists who were so highly pre-screened, they had already gained admission to a world-famous music academy, right? And so the analogy I made to him was like, this would be like conducting a study of basketball prowess, starting with NBA centers, noticing they had practiced a lot, and saying that only practice got them to where they are, not practice plus being seven feet tall, right? It's what statisticians call a restriction of range problem, and you could hardly have more restrict restricted range. The other problem was any measure of variance was left out of the original study. So an example in the book I use is, is to chess. So in chess, the average number of hours of practice to international master status is 11,053. But some people make it in 3,000 hours, and some people make it in 25,000 hours. So the average tells you nothing without the variance. And there was a great degree of variance in the original 10,000 hours study. That's why in, in the book I subtitled one of the chapters uh, 10,000 hours plus or minus 10,000 hours, but it's not as good for the corporate speaking tour. <laughs> But it's better for the really important speaking tool, which is the LSE. Um, going back to the, the Ericsson study, the, the Berlin study, I was amazed when I read it, I was going to put my hand up, um, that actually the, the most surprising piece of information in this study about what separates elite sort of uh, musicians that are going to become international soloists and then competent uh, professionals who are going to join orchestras and those who are going to be merely very good amateur musicians. That's what he sets out to answer. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting to find this Calvinist work ethic that the real differentiator is this hours and hours and hours. In actual fact, they all practice exactly the same amount of hours, you know, according yeah. to his uh, research, which is questionable anyway. And what he also found was that the very best people slept more during the daytime, had better social lives, were really more intellectually curious, generally didn't worry so much. And it was a bit like the difference between the entrepreneur who actually has his light bulb moment when he's going for a walk and then doesn't worry about it, and the guy who spends his whole day on his black room, falls asleep at one in the morning, still checking his emails from his boss. So actually, the, the one hopeful and liberal message sort of got lost, which is that it's about being good when you're doing it. Is That's that right. That's right. Exactly. So, right. Quality of practice uh, often gets overlooked for quantity of practice in this 10,000-hour argument, but also, just to further the point you made, so he was looking at people who are already in the West Berlin Academy of Music, right? And the studies that look at people just before they get to that level, they actually find that the, the musicians who are rated as uh, the highest skill by their teachers have, um, are distinguished by a quality of their childhood experience that they actually practiced less on the instrument that they are now using. So the, the students who are deemed of average ability have actually, they pick an instrument, they stick to that one instrument, they get a lot of lessons, they get a lot of practice hours. Whereas the students deemed of exceptional ability sample a couple instruments early on. Find the one that's kind of the best fit for their skills and their psychology, and only later on do they specialize. But by the time they get into the academies, they haven't nearly accumulated as many hours as, as their peers who will go on to sort of lesser uh, careers. So n cutting out 
the entire part of the development until the point when Erickson looked at them is a huge problem because it doesn't show you what was going on for the rest of their lives. So I'm going to use a tiny bit of autobiography. I was a very specialised uh, sportsman from a young age, and one of the things I regretted most when I sort of had arrived as a professional player was that my sporting education had not been broader. And I realised that uh, I'd had lots and lots of practice at just batting, but in actual fact I had to learn quite basic um, movement and athleticism skills, which would have become much more na- would have come much more naturally had I played more sort of what I call go-get-the-ball sports, like football or hockey or even rugby union. One of the difficulties, if you like, with the ideas we're discussing is taking on this idea that many parents have that the way to have a super talented or super successful child is early specialization, more and more and more of the same thing. You've looked at the evidence in sport. How do you go about combating that and trying to talk about sampling and the sort of broader education? I, I think the only real way to combat it is, it, well, and, and first of all, that specialization and, and parents driving kids actually does produce better teams for like 12 year olds. Right? So it, it, if your goal is to win the 12-year-old whatever championships you're competing in, then it's a good strategy. If you're, Head down, head to the line. Right, exactly. If, if your goal is to produce ultimately to help people fulfill their potential, the strategy is the opposite. All the sports science is showing that you want a sampling period. So this Tiger Woods and the, this Mozart uh, are, are what I call unicorns. They don't really exist. Like This almost never happens, and when it does, they can't be made. So Tiger Woods, I've asked him about it. He said, my father never asked me to play golf. It was always my desire that was important. But I think the only way to really make a difference for parents is not to say this is good for your child because parents don't want to listen to anybody else tell what's good for their child. I don't know. You, you have a child. I don't. So I was, He's uh, but, six months old. Really, our conversations are quite one way. Gotcha. <laughs> so, um, He's winning. That's all I can say. <laughs> And, and, but I'm sure he's very successful at shaping his environment. No, no, he's, but, yes. um, but I think what you can appeal to parents with is, is the fact that there's actually a performance issue here. If you want your child ultimately to be as good as they can be, then you don't want them to be as good as they can be when they're 12. You want them to gain a range of skills. The much more normal pattern of elite athletes is, is the Roger Federer pattern, who played badminton, basketball, football, who's, who's one of my colleagues described his parents as pulley, not pushy, who were always telling him to take it a little less seriously, less specialized. Steve Nash, the great NBA point guard, did not even own a basketball until he was 13 years old. Right? He was eight years behind me in basketball training. It, it became one of the most skilled players of all time. It clearly didn't inhibit his... Um, you know, his, his skill development. So I think the only way to make a difference with parents is to say, I'm not just saying this because I think I know what's good for your kid. If you actually want them to get as good as they can be, you want this early sampling, sampling period, not this specialized period, and only specialized later on. You mentioned Roger Federer, who I've been around a certain amount uh, at Grand Slam tennis events. One of the striking things about Federer is how normal he is in those parts of his life that aren't being a 17 Grand Slam winner. So he's actually, he radiates a certain naturalness and that's connected to what you're describing about his parents. His parents made great efforts to dedicate just as much attention and love towards his sister. There was no kind of hothouse, specialised environment. They tried to sort of push the normal all the time and you end up with someone who's not only the greatest player but also someone who seems to have enjoyed it in an unusual way. One of the things I, I really enjoyed about your book, and I, you tell the story from the beginning, was about your roommate, I think, mm. or your or friend at college, and you both ran together, and how you learn a deep lesson about talent from observing 
your, your twin experience. Yeah, so I, I was what we call in the States a walk-on um, to college athletics running the 800 meters. And a walk-on basically means you're not recruited because you're not good enough to get recruited. I had played a range of other sports, American football, basketball, baseball. I know it's a surprise I didn't make it in the professional level of American football. Um, Offensive linemen, one of them really, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I've lost a little weight. I've been on the 5-2 diet. No, I'm just kidding. I haven't been. I shouldn't say that. Um, and, uh, Everyone will be doing it if you say that. <laughs> um, and, and so, but I really wanted to run in college, and so I arrived and I sort of tried out, and they paired me up, I think, in an effort to get me to, to sort of quit the team with a guy who was already a national athlete for the Canadian national team, and he was just wiping the floor with me left and right. But I stuck with it for whatever stupid reason, and uh, a strange thing started to happen. I sort of started to catch up to him little by little. We're doing this. We were living together. We were eating together. We are training together stride for stride, day after day, and I'm gaining on him. And, and eventually, I think, when I got down to running, he, when we started training together, he was running 20 seconds faster than me in the 800 meters, which is a lot in 800 meters. And within a year, within a season of training, um, I was right next to him. And I think at about one minute 50 or minute 51, I passed him. And then he never beat me again. And what happened was our coaches started saying, you know, wow, we put you with this really talented guy. You're really tough. Like, he's got all the talent, but you're, you're, just, you're just tougher. That's great. And I started saying, like, wow, that's kind of awesome. Yeah, I guess I'm really tough. And... and and for him, they would... just walked away and stopped listening. Yeah, right. And, and for him, they started giving him, like, psychological pep talks, saying, you know, you just need to be more calm, as if the problem was in his head. You know, it, I, I can tell you, I saw him throwing up after our workouts just as much as I was. We were doing the same thing. He was struggling the same amount. It ended up with me getting this award for the four-year athlete at my college who, who overcame significant challenge and difficulty to achieve athletic success, <laughs> which was great. I got this, like, big glass and wood box, you know. Of course, my significant difficulty just being that I stunk at first. Um, and, and, you know, I always knew something was wrong with the narrative because we were doing the same thing, right? Our, and we were doing the same thing and getting more different, not more the same. And in the researching of this book, I learned that one of the revolutions of exercise genetics is finding trainability genes, right? Just as medical genetics has shown that because of differences in you and me and a gene that uh, is involved in acetaminophen metabolism, you might need one Tylenol to get the same effect that I need three, or maybe no amount works for me. The exercise genetics is finding that because we're truly different at the genetic level, the, the medicine of training affects every person differently. And I got tested, and what do you know, I have a whole bunch of what's called high responder genes for aerobic trainability. I have what's called a low baseline. I have low oxygen carrying capacity at rest, and training works like rocket fuel for me. And my training partner was the opposite. He had a high oxygen carrying capacity at rest, and he responded to training very, very slightly. So just to put that into even more layman's terms, if neither of you trained at all, he wins every time. Oh, if you were destroyed. compulsory couch potatoes, you're both sitting there with your remote controls, no training at all, That's right. there's no contest. But when you actually introduce an element of training you quite quickly leave them behind. That's correct. And the really interesting thing about it is that the studies have now shown that your baseline and your trainability are completely uncorrelated. So you really have no idea how, what your potential is if you just have people do a race with no training and say, all right, I'm only taking the people who are best today. So you really don't. Give me an example of a, a current sports and one of whom I played with who had exceptional trainabilities. Owen Morgan, I don't know if any of you are cricket fans here. So I met Owen when he was 17, and he was a young Irish kid, and he was just he'd been signed as a sort of you know reserve for Middlesex. He's now probably the, the star uh, 2020 and one-day cricket player for England. 
And he was very slight, as a lot of 17-year-olds are, and he was highly skilled. You could see he was a very good ball striker, but he had to hit it right in the middle, because if he didn't, he didn't go for four or six. Then, guess what happens, you know, he gets on the weight training program, and he gets his Popeye muscles, and then you've got exceptional hand-eye coordination and ball striking ability, as good as I've ever seen, exceptional, times by very, very good trainability, and he gets very strong, and now when you see the ball disappearing out of the park all the time. So that was one of the exposures by you. And as a coach or a captain, you're always looking for not what, what level have they reached me at, but what's the potential upside. How, how have you, of all the people, the extraordinary thing about this book is the, the amount of people you meet and you know, the scientists and also athletes themselves. Sketch for us a, a few examples of the most extraordinary genetic outliers that you encountered. Well, let me, let me tell you about my, my favorite interview, and then I'll, then I'll tell you the, my, sort of the biggest genetic outliers. But my favorite interview, so there's a, one of the most surprising findings in the book to me was, so I sort of knew, because I'm a sports science reporter, that um, physical activity that we undertake alters the dopamine environment in our brain, our brain's pleasure and reward system that we get for eating, doing drugs, having sex, all these sorts of things. And uh, scientists that study it know full well that the opposite is true, too, that actually the way that the dopamine genes are set up influences our drive to be compulsively active. And, and one woman I interview in the book who's certainly an outlier in her voluntary physical activity is a woman named Pam Reed, a legendary ultramarathoner. And when I interviewed her, she had just finished the national championships in Ironman triathlon uh, in New York, qualified for the Worlds at age 55 or something like that. And I was interviewing her the next day, and she was delayed in LaGuardia Airport in New York, and she gets so antsy sitting still that she had stashed her bags in a corner and was running laps around the parking structure while I was interviewing her, having just finished the Ironman triathlon. I mean, it, it, was, it was remarkable. But the, the, my, my favorite sort of genetic outlier in the book is a guy who actually just passed away two weeks ago named Eero Manturanta, who was, in the 1960s, probably the greatest endurance athlete in the world. He won seven Olympic medals in cross-country skiing, uh, three of them gold, by margins never before um, or since equaled. And during his career, it was thought it was assumed that he was doping because he had about 50% more red blood cells than a normal man. And 20 years after he retired, a group of scientists started testing members of his family and found that there was uh, a, a gene mutation that some of them had that caused the EPO receptor. So we've probably all heard of EPO because it's like the drug that Lance Armstrong is so fond of. Um, and and so. Arrow, what he had, the EPO receptor, so if the hormone is a, is a key, the receptor is a lock, and when the key fits in the lock, stuff starts happening. In this case, red blood cells start being created. And, and the part of Arrow Monteranta's EPO receptor that was affected by this gene mutation turned off the brakes. So his body just kept producing red blood cells. So he had, naturally, what Lance Armstrong used technology to get. He was literally naturally doped and had this incredible oxygen carrying capacity. And the rare thing about that is it's so rare to find a single gene that, that propels someone to gold medal status. Most traits are, the, are caused by a combination of many genes, environmental factors, and he still had to train like crazy. But that was a really, really rare find. And, and I, I enjoyed it even more for the book because he happened to be working as a reindeer farmer in the Arctic of Finland, which is pretty good for narrative writing. <laughs> Let's talk about methodology for a second. One of the tactics used by, or, or literary um, methods used by the books you mentioned earlier on, the 10,000 hour school, is to say, everyone says this great sportsman is incredibly good and natural, but 
in actual fact, we tested him at this, for example, um, reaction time, and it turned out he was completely normal. Therefore, there's no genetic or talent there whatsoever, and it's 100% practice. As though testing someone for eyesight disproves having any genetic advantage in anything else. How do you go about actually balancing that debate and sort of which examples would you say? I think you use baseball players yeah. as, a, as a, a cohort who yeah. actually do show quite clear uh, heritable genetic advantages over the general population. Yeah, ba- baseball is a really good example, and this could be applied to cricket as well, but I used baseball because I, I had an example that I liked and, and I know the sport better. Um, so the, in the first chapter of the book, I tell this story of a. Uh, a softball pitcher who is challenged by American baseball players. I don't know if Barry Bonds is a name that's really known here. He's kind of one of the great baseball players, notorious for a variety of reasons. And he, he goes up to this softball pitcher at the 2003 Major League Baseball All-Star Game and starts telling her, like, you've been striking out all those girls. Like, you've got to come face me, you know. You can't, he, he says to her, I have all the video of this, but he says, you can't be pretty and good and not face a guy who's handsome and good, you know. So this is him, like, sort of... And then he starts telling her, like, you better bring a net. I'll hit you in the face with the ball. Because this is how Barry flirts, by telling women he'll hit them in the face with a ball. Um, if you know Barry Bond, it works every time. Um, and, and It works better if you probably have some athletic success. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. And, and so he, he tells her, he says, bring, okay, come, come pitch to me. Bring, you know, bring a cameraman. I want the world to see. And, and he should be able to hit it, right? Because she pitches from 43 feet in about mid-60 miles per hour, um, 100K per hour. Um, and he's used to facing 100 miles per hour, 160K, and the, from a little farther mound. But the, yeah, but the transit time that he's used to is actually shorter than what he would see from her. And the, and the ball's bigger. That's right, about 0.4 of a second. And so she goes out to, to pitch to him with her cameraman. After about three pitches, the cameraman is only like filming his shoes because Barry missed so badly that he wouldn't let the guy film anymore. And it turns out that Barry didn't actually know what allows him to hit a ball. Right? He probably thought, like I did, that it was his reaction speed. But it turns out when baseball players, cricket batsmen are tested, they have no faster reaction speed than teachers, doctors, lawyers. I scored faster on a simple reaction speed test hitting a button in response to a light than Albert Pujols, who's like maybe the greatest hitter of all time in baseball. And what they really need... So it takes a fifth, it takes a fifth of a second to even see that a ball's in flight for that information to cross the synapses, the gaps between neurons to the back of your brain, and for you to even start muscular action, to even start it. That's half the total flight time of the ball. So just to start muscular action. So that that advice to keep your eye on the ball, it's nonsense. You could close your eyes when the ball's halfway in. It wouldn't make any difference because you've already decided what you're doing, if it weren't psychologically upsetting, I guess. So what what the players really do is they use... They've learned through practice how to interpret the shoulder rotation of a pitcher or a bowler, movements of the torso, the flicker, which is the flashing pattern uh, the seams make when the ball rotates, to quickly, as soon as the ball's out of the hand, to make a decision of where it's going to go in the future, because they can't rely on their reflexes. So that's why when Bonds was faced with the unfamiliar shoulder rotation, the unfamiliar torso movement, unfamiliar spin of the ball, he's worthless. That said, once he's learned the sport-specific skill, like other major league baseball hitters, his visual acuity, on average, for Major League Baseball hitters is 20-12, meaning they can see standing from 20 feet away what I have to stand at 12 feet away to see. So it's a great example of athletes who are useless without the sport-specific, what I call software, that they download. But once they have that, their hardware makes a huge difference to how good the whole machine is. David, you may not know about uh, 
a player called Jeff Boycott, but I see one of my BBC colleagues uh, who will definitely know him, and I, I commentate with, with Jeffrey. And he was one of the greatest ever English batsmen, and he's from Yorkshire. And the two things interreact to create someone who's got very strong opinions. And Je- Jeffrey, um, uh, Jeffrey put it to me recently in a conversation with him in Australia. And he said, I'm, I'm telling you, I used to make a decision when the ball was sort of two-thirds of the way down against people bowling 95 miles an hour. And he was a very, very good player of fast bowling. So I'm you know, sitting there with my three England caps. I'm not going to say, Jeff, you're talking rubbish. But I'm thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure he's not making a decision with the, with the, the ball. Because in actual fact, there just is simply not enough time. That's right. So what is often talked about as a, a late decision is actually an illusion, which right. is created by the ability to pick up cues. That's right. Or sometimes you hear players talking about, especially quarterbacks, will talk about the game slowing down, right? The game is not slowing down. They're just seeing things before it's happening. So if you track the eye movements of, not, not if you track by looking at it, but when, they're, when quarterbacks are fitted with sort of special goggles that can track their eye movements, the sort of lower level quarterbacks actually look at players to see where they're going, whereas the Peyton Mannings look at spaces between players that are unifying to the relationship of the players as a whole so they can predict what's going to happen before it. They are literally like grandmasters playing speed chess, um, sort of looking at spaces to see what's going to happen before it gets there. But there's no reason that he should know that, right? The better you are at this, the more you've automated these processes in your brain, and you're actually a really, really poor person to say, you know, there's a reason why Barry Bonds doesn't know how he hits the baseball. It's a totally unconscious process. And again, like I said, my motto I always say for sports science writing is just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist. Like, you can ask an athlete how they do what they do, and they don't. They're not always equipped to tell you how they actually do it. But he, he, he Muhammad Ali. Did you just say example. that to him? Could I just take it? I'm not sure. Scared. Yeah. So I'm like. But the, Muhammad Ali could deliver uh, his the time of his punch. He is actually one athlete who did have very good reaction speed. Um, kind of an outlier in that sense. But his he could get a jab to an opponent's face in about 40 milliseconds, which is way faster than anyone can actually react. So did, if people did not have anticipatory skills based on the way he's moving in his body, they'd be hit by every single punch. It'd be impossible to ever get out of the way of one. Interesting about um, interviewing sportsmen, talking to sportsmen. One of the, uh, the quirks of my life is that I was a practitioner and then part of my life now is, is commenting on sport. And the thing has evolved called a press conference in which people are asked questions, normally fantasies, and then fantasy arguments are given, which are then written in newspapers. <laughs> and we saw a classic example of the fantasy of the press conference during the Olympics, when it actually was an amazing example of how dominant the 10,000 hours uh, paradigm had become, because almost every interview began with, if David's the gold medalist and I'm the interviewer, David, that must be incredibly satisfying. After all those mornings you woke up at five in the morning to do the 10,000 hours practice, because it was incredibly hard work and you didn't take any joy in it because you're just a hard-working, suffering athlete. Tell us how it feels to have got your hard-earned, deserved results today. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it was very hard. You know, and, and that's what happens. And then this sort of hardens into uh, scientific fact. So how do athletes take it when you... I mean, do you actually put it to them that they that their explanation or their narrative is at odds with the science. Well, they, but they have worked hard. They have worked hard. There's no doubt about it. You know, and, and except the rare cases like Donald Thomas, who I talk about in the book, who won the World High Jump Championships like by accident on a lunchtime Tell us event. about Donald. That was a, such a strong okay. part of that, That's a rare case. So this is a, a, a story I tell called The Tale of Two High Jumpers, where I contrast one guy named Stefan Holm, who like, grew up obsessed. He's like the Mozart of high jump. He grew up obsessed with high jump, improved about one centimeter a year over 20 years. By his estimate, 20,000 hours of practice. And then a guy named Donald Thomas, uh, who was a student at a small college in Missouri, 
who was talking a lot of trash at lunch, and a high jumper from the track team said, like, you can't, you can't even jump over a bar that's 6'6". Six, six. So they go home, they get a bar, Donald gets his sneakers, they set the bar up at 6'6", six, six, he clears that, 6'10", clears that, 7 feet, clears that. And so then they enter him in the next track meet. I have great pictures of him in his first track meet going like this, because he's not used to falling backwards, and he's coming down from 7'5". <laughs> And so, so he, takes, he takes a scholarship to Auburn University a couple months later, beats Stefan Holm in the world championships. So those two guys averaged 10,000 hours of practice, right? It's just that one of them put in 20,000 hours and one of them put in zero. Um, Scientific proof right there. Also, just, every time. This, I mean, Donald's an outlier in every way because I asked him, you know, so how do you feel about high jumping? Kind of boring, that's what he said. But you'll never hear from a world champion. So, he, he's, he, But when he was examined, it turned out that he was just born with an incredibly long Achilles tendon, which is like the spring in the back of your leg. And you, you can't alter that length through training. Um, but Stefan Holm, on the other hand, through training, altered the stiffness of his Achilles tendon. So, you, so here's a guy, one guy's extreme path of nature, one guy's extreme path of nurture, end up in the exact same place, even in a very straightforward sport. This kind of shows the fallacy of the nature of verse nurture. But to, to go to your point, I think, you know, everyone has worked hard. So what happens is you, you, you look, at, look at the NBA, for example. You standardize, you, you screen out most of the gene pool due to a certain trait, and then, then practice really separates people. So you really do have to work hard. But I've, the, the area or the sector I've encountered the least resistance from has been elite pro athletes. And I don't know if that's because they all work as hard as they can at what they do and still get beat sometimes, or they saw themselves, you know, they've all had the experience of being in a training group of five guys and getting more different, not more the same as they train. Um, I'm I'm not sure what it is, but they seem to be fine with the idea that there are multiple factors. And I don't think, you know, it's it's a real straw man to say that anybody thought that it's all genes. That nobody thinks that. Even the most, there are two sides of this debate. There's people who say it's only practice, that's one extreme, and the other extreme is it's practice and genes. And I only think one of those is truly extreme. Um, and I never met a geneticist who thought that because Michael Jordan is literally taller than 99.7% of the world population, that that somehow diminishes the hard work or competitiveness that, that he has. The other narrative trick that people play is to say, People who believe in genes, they end up being eugenicists. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can distinguish between saying that Roger Federer has got good athletic genes and saying I'm in favor of eugenics. It seems to be quite a you know, difference no, between the two. Except for you are a eugenicist, but that's just a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I've worked 10,000 hours at that. Right. Um, one area, I've been trying to think of ways we can really disagree. Um, so it's been quite difficult. Um, I thought I might throw in some advocacy of cricket, but instead, uh, I'm a hypothesis which I put forward in luck. Very, very broad brushstrokes here, so it's sort of vulgar and coarse. But generally speaking, the, the early phase of professionalism, before there is much standardised practice, there's huge variance and diversity in the way people practice in the early stages of the 1970s, 1980s. So, for example, McEnroe doesn't do that much fitness training, and he still enjoys going to burger bars. And, and Connors puts on weight at times, and then you know gets fit again. But he varies. Lendl becomes the ultimate professional and actually says, I'm going to do all my uh, aerobic training on a bike to look after my knees, I'm going to become super fit, I'm going to get the same guys that laid down the court in Flushing Meadow, where the US Open is, and put one in my back garden. I'm going to take practice to the limit. No one is going to be anywhere near me in practice. He became the practice outlier. And if we're honest, he hauls down his rivals and becomes the world number one for what adds up to about five years. The problem is, from the nurture point of view, is that everyone else says, you know what, this Ivan Mendel guy's on to something, let's all do it. So basically now, 
you have tennis players that all have masseurs, physiotherapists, physiologists, personal trainers, uh, a very, very extensive team, a team of support staff, which is as big as a, a full professional team, just for one player. Uh, I heard Thomas Burdick say the other day, it's almost impossible to gain an edge through training. So in a sense, my theory was that sports started off before professionalism was being determined a lot by innate, innate ability, before people practiced that hard. Then in the early stages of professionalism, you can get an edge through preparation and through uh, dedication. And now, as professional sport approaches optimization, in actual fact, what you're seeing is the Federer's and the outliers, talent-wise, once again going to the top. But I think, in your book, you have a slightly different view. To You think that professionalism is going to crack open whole new ways of practicing, which we haven't even envisaged yet. Is that right? I think to some degree, although I, I, I agree with a lot of the points you made, too. I mean, the... Damn. Um, you we'll know, try well, again in a second. But, but, so, I mean, there was a time, right, when... when Genes really probably did just determine who was going to win. Like if you look at you know the guy who won the Olympic marathon in 1904, right? He's nobody was practicing. Nobody knew anything about sports science. The guy was drinking rat poison and brandy while he was racing. Like we didn't know anything about it, and so you just showed up, and whoever was the best went. And then it, the pendulum sort of swung the other way. People started practicing more. But you're right. So the, the more obviously the more you standardize the genes the more bigger difference practice makes. If everyone was an identical twin, only practice would separate them. And the more you standardize the practice environment, the bigger difference genetics makes. So it's a sliding scale, but we're increasingly restricting both of those ranges, the genes and the practice. So it's, it's, it's harder to make a difference. But um, I think there are a couple other things going on. One, if you look at sort of world records in sports that are easier to quantify because it's difficult in, in kind of tennis is world records are coming, they're moving southward latitudinally and eastward longitudinally. So records are coming from populations that previously were not included in the competitive population, basically. And I think there are probably still some populations uh, that have not participated. And I think we can still do a better job of, of individual tailoring of training programs, right? So we know that no two people have uh, an identical genome, even if they're identical twins, actually. And so the trick is trying to find the perfect environment for that individual's physiology. And, and you know, sometimes, like, you just throw the same training plan at everybody, and if you have enough people, you don't worry about the people who fall off the boat. But I, but I do still think there are advantages to be had through specifically tailored, through first getting people in the activity that best fits their biology and their mentality, and then tailoring programs to them. The, the most highly tailored training programs I saw in any of my research were actually for Navy SEALs, where they eventually progressed to one-on-one -on -one coaching that's specifically tailored to them. They have access to a lot of resources and physiological testing that allows that to happen. So during the implication of what you say for, for parents and for kids is to have at the back of your mind the question, I'm quite good at this, I may be very good, but is there something out there that I could be better at? Yeah. I have a story for... When I was about seven, I decided that my lifelong, my all four years of talking and telling people what I was going to do, commitment to being an England cricketer, I was changing my mind, I wanted to be an England football player. And I was pretty set on this for a short while. My sister, we were brushing our teeth in the bathroom one night, my sister's four years older than me, said, I heard about this football idea you've got, terrible idea, you're not fast enough. I said, oh, she said, no, 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 definitely not fast enough, stick to cricket. And I think she was definitely right, but what really annoys me is that was the moment she could have said golf, completely static. And who knows, <laughs> if it had been, you know, picked the right sport at eight, I could have been really good at something. But in, in terms of uh, 
the implications for, uh, I mean, you make an incredibly strong scientific case. Moving into the sort of practical sphere, if you were to, to summarise all the things you observed, and then if a parent was sitting next to you, what would you say to them, and if it, or, or a very talented sportsman, age 12 or 13, what would be the advice? So, so let's, let's assume that they are not going to do all kinds of... The, let's go for the no-cost advice, right? Because we're going to assume they don't have a lot of access to physiological testing, right? The, the Uzbekistan Olympic Committee just announced they're going to start genetically testing children, which is stupid for all kinds of reasons, even aside from the ethical ones. But what, what I would tell them, a parent of a child, is, is first of all, so if, if the child happens to be the rare Tiger Woods and picks up a golf club at 10 months and is, like, cannot be contained in golfing, then, then give them the environment to practice that, right? But most kids are not that. I would tell the parent there is no evidence at all that a parent can transfer their motivation onto a child uh, for the long term. There is, there is now evidence that there is a protective effect from playing multiple sports in terms of physical health and lack of injuries, not spending less time in sports at all. In fact, spending more time in sports for some of the kids, but just trying different sports. And I would say that we know a whole lot about the skills and the physiology that lead someone to succeed in a certain sport now. And you really need to emphasize that sampling period. Expose your kid to a bunch of different activities uh, before the age of 12. Don't, don't push them to specialize that. Well, once they do, then put the emphasis on quality of practice, not on the quantity of practice. Don't, don't disagree. And let me add one thing to that. So one of the things, so you said that you were too slow maybe for football. So I didn't say that. We'll take your assistance. My assistance is the authority. So, and, and, and it is true. So from, we know from longitudinal studies in the Netherlands that from the age of 12, the kids who are in professional development pipelines, and that's already a restricted range, yeah. if they're slow, they never catch up and they never make it, period, even at age 12. Slow boys never become fast adults. Same slow girls never become fast adults. Um, that said, the kids that make it in addition to being faster than the other kids also display what's called self-regulatory behavior, which when you watch it on video, which I did, looks like annoying 12-year-old syndrome. It's like they're the kids going up to the coach and saying, why are we doing this drill? I've already done this. How is this helping me? I want to do something different. They're actually taking responsibility for the quality of their own practice. And they do a much better job at assessing their strengths and weaknesses, much more similar to how the coaches do than the players who never make it. So I think I would tell a parent to, to provide opportunities for sampling, but then not to uh, dampen that annoying 12-year-old behavior because that's what sports psychologists love and call self-regulatory behavior. Look at it as self-regulatory instead of just insolence. David, we'll sort of stop chatting between ourselves because we could carry on all night and we'll open up to the floor. Um, we'll have questions from anyone. If They could be questions rather than speeches with a question mark uh, at the end, that would be great. I think we've got some roving microphones and uh, far away and direct them as you wish. <coughs> Shall we go here? Hi. Um, you talked a lot about the uh, physiology and obviously that makes a lot of sense that genes influence physiology. You've talked less about how genes can uh, influence how good we are at uh, picking up things, at uh, practicing. So there's certain sports where, well, athletics, you can really see that genetics is hugely important, whereas something like tennis, it would be perhaps less important, and purposeful practice would make more sense. Thanks. Um, so in, in tennis is an interesting one because 
there's, a, there's this amazing German study that made no impact anywhere else in the world because it was only published in German. Um, but, so I had to hire translators for some of these things to translate some of these papers. And one of the things it found was that certain traits that are things that you would see, like on the athletics track, um, running speed, general athleticism, the kids who had those, and Steffi Graf and Boris Becker were both in this study, um, picked up the tennis-specific skills much more rapidly. So there seems to be an impact of general athleticism on the ability to pick up some of those skills. Some effect, not a massive one, but it's stable in repeated samples. So first of all, there's that. And Steffi Graf, by the way, could have been a gold medalist in the 1500 meters. Her, I've seen, like, her, when they were testing her, it was incredible. She could have done whatever she wanted. But there, so in terms of picking up more complex motor skills, so there's evidence that there is a genetic input, mostly from twin studies, where you look at sets of identical twins, you have them practice motor skills, intercepting flying objects, things like that. And the the rate of improvement within pairs of twins is usually like six to nine times higher or more similar than the rate of improvement between sets of twins. So we can say there's very there's a genetic component to how quickly people learn those skills. And there is some emerging science pointing to specific genes. So actually in the afterword that I'm adding to the book, I, I re-put in a section I previously deleted about a gene called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, codes for a protein that's a chemical messenger in the brain. And it's, it's been known for a while that it impacts the ability to store like memories when someone is shown a scene, that one version uh, that influences the metabolism of this brain chemical. Um, those people recall memory scenes better. And now there's some work suggesting it also influences the kind of mem muscle memory that's important in sports too. So there's these sort of simulated driving tests and, and other digital simulations where people with that version that, that, that normally do not do as well on memory tests and repeated trials make more mistakes. If you call them back later, they've forgotten more. They don't do as well. Um, and so there's, I think we have to ever, always be cautious about single gene studies and also brain activation studies because you can see, again, the, the people with the sort of good version of that gene, if they practice a motor skill with their right hand, you'll see growth in the part of the brain that represents the right hand, the, motor, the neural motor map. And you won't see it in the people with the other version of the gene at the levels of practice done in the studies. So I think there's a lot of proof of concept work there. I'd like to see it bolstered more. And I hope that eventually that will lead to strategies where we say, okay, people with this genotype do not progress in motor skills as quickly. Let's try some different strategies so that we can figure out how to make the best environment for each person's individual genotype. So I think there's a lot. Because those skills are so much more complicated to study, I think it's going to take quite a bit of time. But I hope that's a little teaser of what's out there. Hi. Um, I have a question in particular about uh, how you talked about um, kids, uh, kids should uh, try a lot of variety of different sports. And I'm curious if you think there should be uh, sports with similar, like, transferable skills or that fit a particular archetype. Like, I know, you know, Russell Wilson, who played football, was also uh, drafted by the Texas Rangers to play baseball, and same with Colin Kaepernick. Or, you know, uh, football players, the tight ends are frequently previous basketball players. Um, and I, I'm wondering if, you know, that's a particularly important factor. Like, you might not want them to do skiing and then water sports and then one other, you know, like soccer or something. And so, kind of curious. Right. That, that's a great question. And, and my first answer is, in some ways, that's like a million-dollar question right now. So, so the answer is, I don't think anybody right now has the perfect answer to that. And there are a lot of people studying it. What, what are the, you know, because... The science is clear that in, except for you know, rare exceptions, the sampling period and later specialization is the route to 
elite performance. It's, it's not clear if it's the doing the variety of different sports that then speeds you up later or if it's finding the right sports. It, the explanation for that is not exactly clear. There does seem to be um, some benefit from doing multiple attacking sports, right? Where, which would be like basketball or football or American football, where you're forced to interpret arrangements of players. Uh, but I, I think the jury is sort of out on that. So, like again, for Steffi Graf, like she was doing, she was training with the German Olympic athletics team while she was also doing tennis. Uh, but I, I think, sadly, there's a lot that we don't know about talent transfer. But I think there's some evidence to suggest that doing multiple attacking sports um, is is advantageous for someone who's eventually going to be um, in an attacking sport. But but that that is right now like one of the the major areas. Uh, of interest for sports science. When I was at the Australian Institute of Sport and then at the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, that was like what people were talking about collaborating on to try to figure out. So it's a great question. You in the front row there. You've got a mic. So akin to that, you talk about this sampling period. You mentioned 12 years old. Uh, Bali's got this long-term athletic development uh, model. At what point or have you identified a point whereby you would say that specialization becomes okay and the sampling period's been long enough? Yeah, and that, that's interesting. I was just um, uh, late last week at, at a uh, conference of athletic directors of independent schools here, and, and the person who spoke after me was Ross Tucker, who's a very prominent sports science. I don't know if anybody reads the Science of Sport website, but he, he just really laid into Bialy's long-term athletic development program and said there's just no evidence for it. It, it sounds nice, but there's not a lot of evidence for it. Um, and, and I would say you definitely want, in sports that are sports skill-heavy, sports skill motor skill, intricate motor skill-heavy, you want to be exposed before the age of 12. 12 seems like some kind of, not a magical number, because I don't want to call anything a magical number, but that's the age at which... Normally, you can't change your native language. It's the age at which, if you haven't studied, started studying chess, your chance of ever becoming a grandmaster drops precipitously. So I think that's the age at which you want to be exposed. Now, then the question is, when is the best age to specialize? And, and the fact is, I don't think anybody knows because people start specializing when they're forced to at the moment, right, because of the structures around them. And, and so we almost never have a chance. So the first gold medalist for the home team in the British Olympics was a woman named Helen Glover uh, in 2012. She was identified in a program called Sporting Giants where she had played a range of other sports. Somebody measured her. They said, you have really long legs and a really low brachial index, which is the ratio of your forearm to your total arm. Have you ever tried rowing? She hadn't. They stuck her in rowing. Four years later, she's the first gold medalist for the home team. So, you know, Chrissy Wellington, I, I don't know how famous she is as a British athlete, but she's by far the greatest female Ironman triathlete of all time. She's a British athlete retired, undefeated. She had not sat atop a road bike until age 27, right? And didn't turn pro until she was 30. But you're usually not allowed to do that because of the circumstances around you. So I'm not sure we've had a chance to know what the best years to specialize is. The, the most common years for um, the, it, the, the time when the practice hours of the eventual elites crosses over and becomes more than the eventual near elites is between 15 and 18. But I don't think anybody knows if that's optimal. We just know that that is the most common. Can we run a microphone up there? And while we're doing that, I've neglected this side of the hall. So the back there, there's a lady uh, there. Exactly. Hi. Do you agree that we uh, ban doping because it makes things unfair? If so, then 
do we ban people who have genetic advantages that are comparable to doping or do we allow doping amongst their competitors or do we just accept that life's unfair and it gets worse um, that, that, so, so this, is a, this has been a popular question for me because Malcolm Gladwell sort of addressed the, the, the guy that I talked about, the Finnish skier that I talked about previously with this mutation that is very much akin to injecting EPO. Um, so Malcolm Gladwell wrote an article saying, well, if, if this guy has this, then you know, why can't Lance do what he was doing? And my, my answer to that, I guess, is first of all, I think the core values of sports have and do emanate from standardizing the rules, not standardizing the genes, right? Because of his rare genetic mutation, people make that argument, but I don't hear anybody making the argument that every basketball player should have to be 5'10", right? No, nobody makes that argument, so I think it's kind of facile. And I, I think, to me, sports is this wonderful, the best stage to examine human biological diversity. So I was never offended by the fact that the genes were different. Um, but again, sports are like the ultimate human contrivances. So I think you can make that a sort of moral relativistic argument about any in anything that is human created, laws, government, whatever, sports. Sports are nothing more than agreed upon rules. And so if you think there's value that comes out of that, even if you don't agree with the rules, I don't think that means you have the liberty to break it. And I think people only selectively apply that relativist argument to doping because nobody would say um, genes aren't fair so Lance can, um, instead of riding around the curve, he can go straight across the grass, right? Nobody would say that, or that somebody could use a, a, a metal cricket bat or something like that. It's only because it's only because it's only because doping doesn't happen in front of them. So, I I think there are substances on the banned list that should not be, but I don't think athletes should go ahead and 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 break them. They should argue for different rules. And so I don't I don't think that I don't find sort of interesting the argument that because people have different genes, uh, that means sports isn't fair. And I don't think we would apply that argument to anything. Like, does that mean because kids who grow up in wealthy households have more access to networking that other people should be able to cheat? I don't think anyone would make that argument personally. Just wait a second. Uh, David, you mentioned, um, obviously, practice and genes as being a constructs of a successful athlete. Um, how big a role do you think personality traits have to play in, the, in a conceptual model in a sense of creating a, a successful athlete? Very big and I think on a, on a number of levels. I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there with the, the genetic talent to, to do great things in sports but they don't because either, either they don't want to, either they aren't motivated to do it. Um, you look, to, to get to a really high level, you have to make sacrifices. You have to put in. You, there's kind of a slog and drudgery of training, you know. And you have to put in a lot of hours. And, and yeah, I think you have to be okay spending some time on your own and things like that. And I think some people will be weeded out because of their personalities that they that they won't tolerate that. Um, some people won't have those kind of self-regulatory um, uh, character traits where they are constantly assessing what their own weaknesses are. Uh, so I think. I think hugely, and I can tell you from, from those studies that track footballers, they're called the groaning and talent studies, from age 12 to the pros, uh, self-regulatory behavior separates kids, but also the, the kids who go on to become the pros already have intrinsic motivation on par with the adult professional footballers. Intrinsic motivation is the desire to improve themselves. They also have very high ego motivation, which is the desire either for them, 
for other people around them to be worse than them, basically, which can maybe be a little bit annoying, but it looks like the best combination for athletic performance is very sky-high intrinsic motivation. At age 12, the kids are already scoring with the messies in intrinsic motivation, and also very high ego motivation, which might, as adults, make them a little bit difficult to deal with, but seems to be part of the equation. Not really a genetic point, but one of the things we just learned also was that if you're going to sneak out early, always wear trainers. But uh, <laughs> we go to the top. Uh, Alan? Uh, you spoke earlier about sort of a, a basic uh, low-cost approach for an individual athlete or parents of an athlete to approach. Um, if you were made the Minister of Sport for a small, let's say, relatively poor country, what sort of approach would you... Uh, Institute to try and you know, win Olympic gold medals, produce top athletes in a range of sports? If, if I were, okay, so if I were from a poor country, what I would do is, um, I think, if I wanted to win from a range of sports, you said, right? Because if I wanted to win just in one sport, I would just have everybody, I would take the Jamaican model and make everybody sprint and just take out the best and, and basically sacrifice the others to sprinting. But if I wanted to win in a range of sports, I would do basically what, and, and no ethical questions, whatever, I would do what China did, which was when, when China was awarded the Olympics, they, um, but I will do it lower cost because I'm a poor country. So they, uh, so in the first half of the 20th century, athletes' bodies were incredibly similar because the thinking was partly that sprung out of sort of racist science that there was a perfect race or form of man and it meant only men and not women and it meant only white men. Um, and that the average body type, the sort of average height and average weight would be the best for all sports. And so athletes looked very uniform. Since then, we've, re- we've learned that, you know, ath- athletic athletes' bodies, the tall athletes have gotten taller, small athletes have gotten smaller, elite female gymnasts have shrunk from 5'3 to 4'9 on average over 30 years, and, and there are reasons for this. Athletes' bodies are getting weirder. So, you know, Michael Phelps is 6'4", and he has the same size pants as the guy who's five foot nine and holds the world record in the mile, right? Because a long torso is good for swimming and short legs, and a long legs and a short torso is good for running. So there's all this stuff that we know about body types that fit into certain sports. So with with very simple um, measurement instruments, you can start shuffling people to the sport where their body type would be beneficial. And so if the if I'm low cost, I'm just sending people out who know those measurements with very simple equipment and starting my sort of um, talent pools for each sport with a population I've already pre-screened for the factors that we know help. One of the ways China sort of did this in a very simple way is I saw a video of their screening for divers for the Beijing Olympics, and it's all these kids, you know, about five years old with their hands over their head, and if their elbow joints don't meet above their head, the idea is that they won't slice into the water cleanly enough, so out, 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 go to gymnastics. That's it. You know, and it's sort of jarring to see as a Westerner. At the same time, maybe you're saving them some time, you know, and putting them in a sport where they can succeed. So if I'm a low-cost, poor country looking at a range of sports, first of all, I'm focusing on the sports with the, the smallest competitive population, population in the rest of the world. And then I'm applying the body type science uh, to get my, my initial talent pool. Uh, I just want to ask a couple of questions that are sort of interrelated. Uh, the first one is to go back to the, the comment that you made uh, with Ed about um, anticipatory skills with baseball players and cricketers and the idea that they're not reacting to seeing where the ball pitches, they're watching the shoulder reflexes. And surely that, does that, how does that fit with the 10,000-hour rule? Because if they're learning to watch the movements, then 
is that not a form of something that could be taught to other people through practice? So if, if I'd had the same specialist upbringing as, as Ed, could I have played cricket for England by watching Boulder's shoulders? So, so it depends. So, so to go back to the example in baseball, if you, can, you can put in your however many hours it is. And, and, and frankly, so the violinists in that study, by the way, they were at many more than 10,000 hours when they actually reached professional status, whereas athletes are usually at, at far fewer than 10,000 hours when they reach elite status just because of the age when they have to turn pro, basically. Um, but you could put in all the hours you want. So usually, and sort of the way I set up the argument in the book is to say, like, look, this is completely a learned skill. But once you learn that skill, if you don't have 2012 vision, then you, won't, you still won't hit a major league fastball. And, and actually, the visual acuity makes a bigger difference as the, as the uh, ball speed goes up. So you don't even notice how important visual acuity is until you're facing 100-mile-per-hour fastballs, right? So you can put in all that practice. Again, you can download all that software, right? And that's, your learning rate will be different than other people, but you put enough time, you can download that software. Once you've got that, your hardware, which you can't change, makes a huge difference to how fast your overall computer is going to be, to how, to how well you're going to be off. So, so that's why I think it's such a good example of sort of showing the fallacy of the nature versus nurture, right? The computer is useless without the software, but once it's got the software, you want the best hardware you can possibly have. And that's the title of Matt Ridley's excellent book about genes is Nature via Nurture. Just, just to pick up on your point from people I observed in professional cricket, you do see kids who are maxed out at quite a young age, and they're pretty sophisticated players with a total game at 15, 16, 17. And on the one level, that's very impressive. On the other hand, you know they're going to get overtaken and that's often what happens which is why you know, debutants is a very misleading thing people say oh he's done really well his first game is going to get better and better and better no some people have a very complete game early and just get overtaken I actually had another thought on the on the question of what I would do if I were a poor country um, um, to what's funny about being a poor country we're, we're um, practicing David we're trying to get okay. used to it so. <laughs> um, and, and one other thing I would do is I would delay talent selection as long as I could. So talent selection now occurs too early because sports are competing against one another for the talent. So, so they'll try to buy players when they're really young. And, and that's a problem because most of the time the kids who are the best early on are not going to be the best later. One reason for that is because they're usually the early developers. Right? There's, a, there's a great photo of this South African rugby match that's under 13 and one kid's like this tall and one kid's like 300 pounds and they're both 13 years old. So who, who are you going to select? You're going to take the big kid if you're a coach looking at that. But that other kid just hasn't gone through puberty yet, right? And so when selection occurs before physical traits have developed, it's, it's going to be wrong. You're just going to get the early developers. So the, the earlier you force people to specialize and the earlier you do talent selection, the more likely you're going to include the wrong people in it. So you want to delay talent selection as far as you can. And then once you do talent selection, you expose the kids you've selected to all these new resources. You give them better coaches. You give them better training. And that becomes a huge disadvantage for the kids who didn't select, who may go on to develop the traits you actually wanted. So I think then you want to keep those people you didn't select viable for as long as you can without putting them at such a disadvantage that they can never overcome it later on. So I would delay talent selection as long as I could. Come to the right to the front. You referred to the story of when you were at university and you were paired in a room with the Canadian runner um, and how it made you better because you were com competing against him. Um, I don't want to sound sexist when I'm saying this, but 
if you put women in the same league as men, so they were running 100 meters races against men, do you think at any point, because of the extra competition and the extra ego boost from winning, um, do you think that they'll be able to catch up to men and be able to run 100 meters in nine and a half seconds? Uh, no, I don't. Um, and so the, the gap between um, male and female runners at one point was closing in the 1980s. Uh, the progression of women's records was um, proceeding faster than for men's records, and there was a famous, well, not famous, there was a paper in Nature, a very prestigious scientific journal, that showed if you extrapolate those improvements, women would pass men in the 100 meters in the year 2156. Um, but that's, first of all, it was just because women had not had opportunities to participate for the most part. So they were at the very beginning of the curve. And secondly, um, they were, uh, in the 80s, some countries were doping like crazy. So women were making up for their lack of testosterone, which leads to greater upper body strength, more muscle fibers per area, denser bones that support more muscle, uh, more red blood cells, all these things by injecting testosterone because they don't have the gene that causes testosterone production. And since that era has stopped, not to say that doping isn't occurring, but the era of mega-doping, like this kind of East German systematic doping, is not occurring anymore, the records have now widened. Men are actually pulling away from women. So if you look at things like shot put, power sports, the top, like, 66, I think, female shot put throws of all time are between, like, 1983 and 1989. And the 67th was a woman, Heidi Krieger, who had so much testosterone on that program that she's now living as Andreas Krieger because her body had changed so much that she decided she had to live as a man. Um, but now the gap is, is mostly stable. Whether it's 100 meters or 10,000 meters, the, best, the average of the 10 best men is usually about 11% greater uh, than the best women. And in events where... Men and women do compete side by side, like the marathon, um, the, except, for, except for the very least, but most of the people in the race compete together. The gap is still 11%. Uh, so I, I think that is a true biological gap, although I think there are sports where um, most of our sports are also tailored toward things that men are good at. Right? So I'm really curious to see in Sochi because I do think ski jump is a sport where women will outperform men. Uh, lightness is prized in that sport, and I think we will, we will see... Um, women as good or better than men in that sport before long. So I'm, I'm really curious to see it in Sochi. Just, uh, just that, well, it doesn't matter. So what both of you said uh, about five minutes ago, does that mean professional football and cricket clubs select now on a fallacy, i.e., uh, is it fear that they sign early and discard early and disregard the late developers? Well, well, I'll say, so what they, in, in sports that have a lot of money to throw around, they could not care less about efficiency, right? If, if, if they could, they would sign every person in the world and then just take the two that come through. So they, they, they can throw away a thousand people to get the one messy. You know, they don't care about efficiency at all. And that's destructive to the other sports in the country that could be using those athletes. Uh, so I don't think there's, they are sort of selecting based on a fallacy because if they're one of the really big sports, they're just selecting everyone because they don't care about efficiency. For the smaller sports that, that, are, that don't have that kind of talent input to begin with, they often are selecting on a fallacy. So came just uh, this middle section here, third, uh, fourth right. And, and, and to add that, you can see that in, in their sort of under-13 teams. Like I was just looking at data for South African rugby, and you can see in their under-13 teams, it's like almost nobody that is on the under-13 national team is on the under-16 national team. But then once you go from under 18 to like under 21 or something, this selection gets much, much better. There's a much higher, like 75% of them make it to the next level at that point. 
anecdotal uh, evidence, not backed by science. My dad always said to me, I never want to see you wearing any tracksuit with a badge on it, Ken, England, anything until you're 18, 19 years old. Then you can go and play for England under 19 and whatever. But until then, you're just a kid, you play for your school, you play for your club, you live a normal life. See those idiots walking around when they're 12 with shell suits on, doesn't work out well. So it's interesting, interesting sort of intuitive, as a lifelong teacher, that was what he observed. There are, you know, I don't mean to keep talking to South Africa, but it's just at their Sports Science Institute, and they are sort of a country that doesn't have a lot of money to put into development, but has some interesting sports stuff going on. And there was a rowing coach named Roger Barrow there um, who, who won the, one of his teams won the gold medal in London. And it was really interesting because everyone has these fancy yellow boats, and he had no money, so he has this gray boat. And you look at the picture of the gray boat passing the line first and all the yellow boats behind it. And he said he, he will not take rowers until they're 19. He will not take people who have rowed before they're 19, generally. And he coached the gold medal team. He gave a presentation called Gold Medal on a Shoestring Budget. Thanks. Um, so you mentioned the spirit of sport and from the conversation you just had, uh, to uphold this spirit of, of sports, um, should there be common constraints applied across them all um, in terms of selection? You mean, it's, sorry, can you expand on that a little? I mean, so, for example, should you um, prevent uh, all sports from selecting people um, below a certain age? Um, I... You know, I don't know if you can forcibly prevent them to do that, um, and 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 I'm not sure you should because obviously different countries prioritize sports very differently. But if your goal was to uh, maximize every individual's athletic potential, not to inefficiently sign a ton of people and have one come through, th- I think that would indeed be better for a larger number of athletes. But the fact is, in most countries, there's one or two sports that are so much more popular and so much more money than the others that I think it would, frankly, be impossible to actually cause that to happen. But I, but I do think that would produce a better experience for a larger number of athletes. Hello, I, 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 I think I've got... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you. I, I think Richard Williams said that, um, now what's a sport that I can get uh, a child to do? And he decided to make a couple of babies and teach them to play tennis, even though he knew nothing about tennis and managed to produce world champions. What's your view on that in, in view of your theories? I think, it's, I think generally it's a, it's, it's a unicorn. I think it's incredibly rare. It's the exception to the rule. I can tell you what the data say for tennis, which is the same as they say for other sports, that the early specializers almost never are the ones that hold on. In fact, the early specializers in tennis, the kids who are both practicing the most and doing the best through about age 13, 14, almost invariably quit by the time when they're still teenagers. They're almost never still around. So I, I think, you know, Serena Williams particularly has has sort of changed the way the game is played. She's a vastly superior athlete. I think it's fantastic uh, what she's done. But those are incredible exceptions uh, to, to what's going on. If you look at the data as a whole, those are almost non-existent. And you never count the non-cases of all, all, the, all the instances where that doesn't work. Uh, it's a quick question on uh, path dependency um, and more of the psychological side of it. I was wondering whether you believe that success begets success. Is that a better model to work on or should uh, initial stages of uh, starting a sport, so between the age of 8 and 15, um, is having a degree of failure 
is that something that would be more conducive to producing a well-being athlete in the future? That, that's a really interesting question, and let me say just because it's, it's not right in my sort of expertise wheelhouse, I'm going to speculate a little bit, um, but, but I'll tell you what I know. So if you look at, I, I think there is, there's no question that, that success begets success in, in some cases, and, and part of that is, um, and, and there seems to be more of an effect of that actually in, in both male animals and humans, because when males have success, they have this uh, big testosterone spike. So, like, if you take territorial mice and, and, and humans are territorial and you have them fight opponents that you've rigged so they can win. So, at first, you take a small mouse and you put it, you want it to fight a big mouse, it won't, it won't fight it because it knows it's going to lose. But if you rig it so it wins a couple straight bouts, then it'll fight anything. Because it gets all, like, juiced up, right? And there, there's actually, this is a total aside, but since I'm at the London School of Economics, there's a fascinating British researcher named John Coates who used to be a day trader and then uh, became a neuroscientist and started taking hormone samples from his buddies while they were trading and could see that he could, he could look at their testosterone spike for the day and tell you how much money they made during the day, like whether they were successful or not. And, and the most fascinating repercussion of his research is that because even though we people say women are hormonal, men are much more hormonal. Our hormones fluctuate much more based on the environment. And so his theory is that as long as we have a lot of male traders, we will always have a bubble because men, when they win something, will become um, more risk-ready and they'll get continually and continually and continually riskier until they cause a bubble and a crash. So we need a ton of women traders and less men traders. Anyway, so th there are cases where su success is, is reinforced by biological processes. Absolutely. Um, that said... Again, going back to that tennis data, the kids who go on to become the elites lost more. They were, they were lower achievers uh, early in their careers, but there was less emphasis on them winning. What, I don't know for sure because you can't tell this from the data, but what it looks like to me is that the, early, the kids who are doing really well early are a combination of kids who are really being pushed by their parents or having extremely privileged access, which is enough to be better when you're young, or they're just the early physical developers where the parents say, wow, I've really got something here. They're, they're mistaking early physical maturation for actual skill. They drive the kids really hard. The kids are winning everything. And then when people catch up um, in adolescence, the, the peers catch up with them and they start losing things, and it's devastating because they've never lost before. The reason I say I think that's the case is because if you look at the timing difference between the boys and girls, it looks like it happens to both of them around puberty. Uh, so I do think while winning in some cases can beget winning, it appears that there's a devastating effect of having won a lot and never having lost uh, for earlier specializers, particularly. Just to add one story to that, a friend of mine was an uh, Olympic athlete, won gold medals, um, and basically had a, only an upswing in her career. Uh, she actually was a late specialist, won, 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 won. Lost form at 24, never regained it. So the graph was like that, an absolute flat line. And uh, I think failure operates as an, um, almost like an inoculation, that you need to have the right degree of failure um, sort of injected at the right time. If you have too much, you can be crushing, but if you have none at all, you don't develop the coping strategies. And that's what happens to a lot of people who, who have known only success and they go to a higher level, or maybe they just lose form for random or misfortunate reasons. It can be catastrophic. Should we go here? David, can I just ask, what role do you think genetic testing will take place or have... Um, bear over the next few years in either identifying people to see whether they do have a, a natural ability through their genes or to help people actually tailor their training programs to maximize their athletic potential? 
I think, I think in the next couple of years, I think generally very little for a number of reasons, one of which is it's becoming increasingly restricted in the United States. I'm not sure about the regulatory environment here, but um, it is becoming increasingly restricted, so it's harder to access in the U.S. The one area where there, there is increasing use of it um, in, in some countries is for genes that predispose people to injury, uh, whether that be this gene I write about in the book called APOE4, which uh, gives some people a hard time recovering from concussions, you know, in, in rugby or American football and things like that. And, and that is being used in some cases now. So you can tell someone, look, you know, you're at increased risk of having permanent brain damage if you play certain sports. And genes that, that code for proteins in the collagens, which is like the body's glue, the tendon, tendons and ligaments, where you can say, you know, you are much more likely to tear your ACL, so let's do some strengthening to try to minimize the risk of that. Those are being used and, and are available. Um, the, the testing for talent selection, I mean, Uzbekistan is doing it, but it's not going to work. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, is... So if, if you look at... Every couple of weeks, I actually get a testing kit from... Strangely, usually from a British company. I'm not sure why that is, but um, saying, we'll test you for sports genes. You know, And every test includes a gene called ACTN3, the so-called sprint gene, which codes for a protein found in fast-twitch muscle fibers only, the kind for sprinting. Um, and if you don't have at least one copy of the so-called right version for sprinting, you're not going to be in the Olympic 100-meter final in Rio, period. Fine. But that rules out 1 billion of 7 billion people on Earth. Right? So it's a really nonspecific test, and you do a way better job with a stopwatch or taking your kid to the park and having them race the other 5-year-olds. So it's... They're marketing something that is alluring because it's technology, but it gives you a much less complete picture than directly testing the physiology. It's like testing for height genes instead of using a tape measure. You know, you'd rather have a tape measure. Um, that said, some of the aerobic trainability genes, I, I saw just uh, a company just started marketing the testing for aerobic trainability, and I think that will be useful sort of more in a health context where, where you can tell people, you know, with just a minimum amount of running, you could really drop your blood pressure and improve your, you know, your lung strength. We really don't have to medicate you if you'll just work out a little bit. So I, I do think that's going to be available. Most people won't use it um, because this, the medical community, while scientists are interested in genetics, the medical community so far has been generally against telling people things about the DNA. Um, so aside from these sort of injury and illness and sudden death genes, I think most of it will be minimal in the next couple of years. We come to the front row here. Hi. Uh, great talk. Thanks. Um, just want to say, obviously, um, in certain sports, doping is more prevalent than, than others. Um, for example, I think cricket is probably, I can't really see that many positives I've taken because it's so hand-eye-coordination skill-based, whereas in other sports, like athletics or cycling, it's, might, it's much more common. So my question is, is it possible for someone who is doped to the gills to beat someone, sorry, to lose to someone who is clean? So, for example, you have... The second, joint second and fourth, I think, fastest sprinters of all time in SF Pound, Tyson Gay, who got who tested positive, but then they're being beaten by Usain Bolt, who's saying he's clean. I was just wondering if you could. I, I do think it's possible uh, for clean athletes, and it's, it's again, I have to speculate because it's hard to know for sure who all's clean, but um, I do think it's possible. If, if I had to bet on it, I would bet that Usain Bolt's clean. I think the times, not that this you know, tells you for sure, but I think the times he was running as a junior are as or more impressive than the times he's running as an adult. Um, so if I had to, uh, you know, if I had to bet on it, I would say I think he is clean. So I do, th I do think it's possible. You know, I wouldn't bet the farm on it because it's athletics and you shouldn't 
bet on anyone, bet the farm on anyone being clean. But, um, I, but to that point also, you mentioned some sports that don't have doping, and, and I think prevalences are different among sports. Um, but I think the, the greatest uh, correlate of the doping problem that a sport has or how many positive tests they have is how hard their officials are trying to catch it, not how much doping is actually going on. Um, so the and, – and with regard to sports that don't need uh, those drugs as much, I would say any sport – so like steroids, for example, are just testosterone analogs. Any sport in which men have an advantage over women, doping is useful. Testosterone analogs are useful. Uh, so I think sometimes it's a bit of a fallacy that they're not useful in those sports, but that said, I think clearly, you know, cycling and you, you, you basically couldn't compete. It, it appeared that for a, a period you could not win the Tour de France uh, without being dope, but I think in many cases clean athletes can um, beat doped athletes. Just by, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so this might be a little bit controversial, but uh, it's kind of a compound question. The first part being, do you think that doping is an effective means to bridge this genetic gap that exists in athletes? And the second part being, do you think that doping could, in fact, find its place in sports, given that the alternative is almost like watching these genetic free freaks compete against one another, whereas if you could level the playing field using illicit drugs or drugs, you would then be rewarding athletes based on their work and dedication to the sport and less based on their genetic predispositions to do well. That, yeah, that's kind of like the Harrison Bergeron, if you ever read that story by Kurt Vonnegut, right, where, like, all the smart people have to have something implanted in their brain that, like, makes this really annoying tone if they ever have a unique thought because they have to be, like, equal to everyone else. Um, and I don't know. That's not the kind of world I want to live in personally. I, I'm more interested in seeing sports science applied so that people can maximize uh, their talents rather than somehow trying to standardize everybody because the easiest way to standardize everybody would probably be to hamper some people as opposed to improving other people. Um, but... I do think it can be effective at bridging the gap. It certainly can in terms of, you know, red blood cell creation, for example, um, using EPO as opposed to having the genetic mutation that that finished steer has. Um, you know, you look at Lionel Messi, who I think used growth hormone when he was young. Like, that certainly bridged a genetic gap that would have been a problem for him, um, but isn't qualified as doping because he had a legitimate medical need. Um, so, so, yes, I think it can bridge the gap in many cases, de- sort of depending on what trait you're, you're going for. Uh, but... I don't think um, I don't think that would be be the way that I would choose to apply uh, the sports science for a number of reasons. Some of them are health. You know, some of the health effects of certain performance-enhancing drugs are vastly overstated. Um, that said, there are health effects of some of them. In many cases, we don't know, and we know there are different responses to drugs. Right, the structure of your androgen receptor or of your EPO receptors ensures that no two people will respond to a drug in exactly the same way. So I think even theoretically the idea of leveling the playing field in that way would be so complex as to be impossible. Uh, So you spoke quite a bit about how uh, talent and practice helps in physical development in sports. Now, I mean, say you have talented and well-practiced athletes. There is often this thought that at the end of the day, it's what the mind does, and it's about being strong and able to withstand pressure. Is there any evidence that being more talented or maybe practicing more helps you become mentally stronger? That, that, that practicing more makes you mentally stronger? Yeah. Um, there, there is, and I'll speak to the areas where I know. So first of all, mental strength alone is clearly not enough to win in sports, right? Because you, you, you can look at the guy who holds the world record in the marathon, right? And if you catch him in January, he's still tough like he is in October, but he's way slower, 
And so obviously you need training too, but there is clearly, with respect to pain tolerance, which is important, and, and I think let's use that as a proxy for mental toughness, um, that people become more resistant to pain upon repeated exposure. Most people. There are some people, the ones who are likely to become chronic pain patients, who actually become more sensitive, less tolerant of pain with repeated exposure. But most people become more and more tolerant. So there clearly is a, if, if that, if you can quantify pain tolerance as toughness, there clearly is an effective practice on your ability to withstand pain. Um, and, and beyond that, I certainly think that having had experience in kind of high pressure situations uh, makes people more able to cope with those. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, so I have two related questions. So, so you said that this view that uh, genes or innate ability that had no, um, that that had no um, importance at all in sports, that that was quite common. And that seems to me to be like an obviously false belief. So, and generally you want to have an explanation of why people have obviously false beliefs. So, so my first question is, what is this explanation? And, and one hypothesis that I could think of is that when they thought that, and you sort of touched upon this, that it could be seen as politically inconvenient, that they thought that this would have uh, nasty political consequences if people um, realized how much uh, innate ability or, and, and genes, how much importance that had. So, and my, my second question follows straightforward, and that is, well, will it really have those nasty political consequences? Because I, I'm not sure at all of that, because, I mean, you could just as well reason that, well, if people see that, well, some people have just been lucky in the genetic lottery, as it were, then they would be less inclined to, to hear or worship and so on. So, I mean, people think then that, well, this will weaken egalitarianism, but perhaps it will rather strengthen egalitarianism. So that's my two questions. Um, so the first part, why do people have this belief? I mean, other than because a bunch of best-selling authors told them this. Um, I think, you know, basically you hit on some of it, is that, that it, it preserves the maximum amount of free will, I guess, or it appears to, although it really doesn't, because then... If, if genes don't matter, then your, your environment is completely deterministic, right? And environmental differences between people are massive. So then it would say that just disadvantaging someone environmentally, which happens in society, is, is you cannot overcome that, right? And so I, I don't think that is actually a positive social message, perfect, personally. But I think also there's been sort of a rebelling against genetic talent because of how poorly genes have been portrayed in the media. This The only coverage that genes get in the media is this week a gene for loving chocolate or that week a gene for promiscuity or whatever and that's not how genes work it, they've been portrayed as being being fatalistic you know and that, that's not the case and that's why I think there's sort of been a rebelling against that and also against sort of any implicit ideas of eugenics right so I, I had an experience where I was interviewing a scientist who's the kinesiology uh, the head of a kinesiology department at a major research university and confided to me that he was hiding data that he had on the difference between um, black and white subjects in their response to a dietary supplement when they exercise. And that's like information that could be useful, but he wasn't going to publish it because he was worried that this would somehow implicitly suggest that there are also innate intellectual differences, even though the two have nothing to do with one another, right? So there was that, that idea of this intellectual athletic teeter-totter, that nonsense idea that didn't even exist until 
sort of Jesse Owens, and, and basically until athleticism became associated with African Americans. That wasn't even an idea. Uh, but it has really frightened people away, I think, from, from talking about um, you know, any of these ideas or, or saying the genes mean anything. Or the, I mean, Matthew Syed, who's a famous writer here um, and has been very critical of me, says that you know, I should stop telling people that there's any such thing as talent because then they won't strive. You know, and I don't think that's right. I think he's he he. I think that activism uh, that is most effective is the kind that actually takes the truth into account. Personally, um, can't think of a better place to end than activism is most effective with, than when it takes the truth into account. Uh, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the sports gene which David's been talking about tonight, I recommend it very highly. I'm sure. Those of you that haven't read it will go out and get it for coffee. Um, thanks very much to the LSE for hosting tonight's um, fascinating uh, insights from David. And thanks to all of you for coming. It's been a great pleasure on this side of it. I think there's going to be a book signing, am I sure. correct? So any sort of further uh, thoughts, I'm sure, will carry on in the antechamber outside. Thanks very much. Thank you. And thank all of you.